I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a T-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. Pundit is the football trivia game. Every sale using the code LIONS at checkout now gives a whopping 40% discount plus a £10 donation to the Lions Food Hub. Visit punditgames.co.uk to order your copy. Punditgames.co.uk. Code LIONS. You're listening to After Law. Hello, dear listeners. Welcome to an international break special uh, show. Neil and I have rustled up another history show for your your uh, oral delectation. To we've got a really good story for you this week. It's enjoying me to put us, give us the lowdown on a fantastic Mill-related story. It's the man himself. It's Mister Neil Fissler. Welcome to the show, Neil. Hello, Nick. How you going, mate? Yeah, no, but this is a great story. This is. Well, I mean, the point of these, the point of these shows for me um, is that we illustrate aspects and sides of our wonderful football club, which has got a long and, as the Americans say, a many storied history. And this is just such a story. Now, I, I knew nothing of this until you sent me the notes, which was last night, listeners. So I've had a little read of it, and I don't claim to be an expert. But a quick look through some of the press relating to this story i'm going to ask everyone listening to cast their minds back or to rewind mentally back to the end the very end of the first world war um tough times indeed and we're going to relate to you now the uh, story of the great Millwall betting scandal um which related nil to a game between the lions and brentford played on December the 14th, 1918. So the war had finished by, well, it was an armistice, actually, by one month. Um, many, many men still in uniform at this time. Um, and the Lions were playing in a, a competition, Neil, called the London Combination, which is like a wartime um, semi... It wasn't professional, even. It was, like, it was just like a like a, a casually organised league, in a sense, for, for, for players and servicemen moving through London, really, wasn't it? The London Combination. Yeah, the London Combination was actually, I think, founded, uh, I think it was 15, uh, 16, 17, 19, 16, 17. And the idea was that uh, all London clubs played each other four times. Uh, so you play everybody home and away a couple of times. But actually, Nick, this wasn't the only betting scandal that I personally have heard of right. involving Millwall. Believe it or not, I was told by a player 
that when we lost to Worcester City in December 58 in an FA Cup second round game, uh, Worcester of the Southern League, they beat Millwall 5-2. And the Millwall player, who is now deceased, told me that several players have received money for, uh, for, shall we say, not trying and uh, one or two of them even turned up with cars uh, <laughs> training the following week. I don't wow. know if it's true, but I'm just trying to add a little bit of context. And I was also told that in the 1963-64 season, when we were battling against relegation to Division 4, weren't we, I think, back then? Yeah, yeah. Uh, that we'd lost... F- I think it was our last game uh, of the season. We'd lost 4-1 at Mansfield. And we needed Queen's Park Rangers to beat Barnsley. Uh, And I think that Millwall would have stayed up. Uh, So contact was made between Millwall and some former Millwall players that were playing for Queen's Park Rangers. This has again come from a player who's deceased. Right. And uh, the QPR players that played for Millwall are now deceased. Hmm. And uh, Mr. Purser, now deceased, <laughs> uh, came up with a suitcase full of cash, I'm told, <laughs> which was taken across London. <laughs> this is actually true. This is, right. well, I believe it. We're, we're these, um, the, I'm thankful that they're all deceased, so we have no liable uh, liabilities. Liable liabilities. Yeah, no, I've not mentioned any names. I've not mentioned any names. <laughs> and, uh, the money was to ensure that QPR beat Barnsley. Right. But but what did QPR go and do? They drew two two Barnsley. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, they relegated Millwall by, I think it was a point. They took the money and were laughing. But obviously in the 60s, there was was a lot of betting scandals in football. Probably the biggest and most well-known was the Jimmy Gould match-fixing scandal in the early 60s when he induced England internationals Tony Kaye and Peter Swan, amongst others, on fixed matches. There's actually a very good documentary of... Uh, drama documentary yeah. made about this when 11 players uh, on both sides of the border were jailed and uh, I think that Tony Kay and Peter Swan were banned signy die and this was huge news because they were both England internationals and, and, and as far as I can remember the bans wasn't lifted or weren't lifted until really early in the 1970s so they served a considerable ban yeah and uh, so it's something that's always been around English football, I guess. And uh, it's a Millwall. Got I mean, I was up. just going to—I was just going to make that point in well, a side point, I suppose. Neil, that is sport and betting, and you could take all sports. We, you know, everyone listening to this show will have heard of the the various fixes and and um, match fixing and situational betting that you get in cricket. Um, I, at this time, now we're talking about the scandal of 1918 in a moment, listeners. At that time, you'd have had in America the famous World Series fixing, which was also arranged via mob connections. So gambling and betting have bedeviled. Boxing, Neil, has bedeviled, been bedeviled by 
betting and gambling influences really over over you know there's nothing new in this is there no absolutely not and this was a season when Millwall it wasn't one of our best seasons as you mentioned it was right at the end of World War One if well if anybody has a look in Richard Lindsay's complete record the number of players that played for Millwall that season it must be 50 players well I just had to print I just happened to have the very book open on as a bit of prep. Listen, so we do do some prep for this show, um, and I've, I've just nice. been looking. <laughs> but it's it's fascinating, Neil, because you're right. Look at the number of players. Um, some of the team sheets that Richard's got in here, and in this, these these are London Combination games, league games of sorts. But in many cases, there's no real record of players that played in the side. There's many many missing names from the the grid from the team sheet grid. Um, only where maybe a press report was, was mentioned a name they have been able to include them. So it was a it was a shiftless. Um, many were in uniform. The one of the uh, lead names in this story um, is, uh, is is it was you know uh, Dougie Thompson was a Canadian. Um, he's in the Canadian Army. Um, played for Millwall. So, but this this these were the times. So I was just going to go on one of my little speeches, Neil, that about. Um, these were t- these were <laughs> listeners will know my little species about t- you know tough times um, and low pay you know because the, these would have been um, I was doing some of the calculations of some of the sums of money in modern terms and they're comparatively small sums really in modern terms for for what you're putting on the line. But then my mind also reminded me that betting still exists in the sport now. We've we've only just seen um, you know Ivan Tony. Uh, you know, named in the England squad after having been suspended for partaking in uh, gambling activities uh, online, obviously, in the modern times. So, you know, and he's a very, very well-paid young man. So it doesn't seem to matter. Um, Maybe it's human nature. I I don't know. But it doesn't seem to matter how poorly you're paid. It doesn't seem to relate to the income. It's, It's the... It's the chance to make some more. I, I don't know. Is it's greed? I don't know what 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 the the driver is. You know, there's no relationship to star. You know, it's, it's not a poverty driven thing. I think that's probably what I'm struggling towards. I don't know if you'd agree with that. No, I would. I think that I think that betting is a scourge of football, isn't it? You look at the Premier League now, and a lot of teams have got betting companies on the fronts of their shirts. Mm. And uh, I know that when Saturday comes, the fans in they won't take betting adverts. No. Neither will, neither will the Price of Football podcast. They've been offered, so they claim money. Neither, to... neither will Ashton Millwall listeners. We've been offered money, well, money, been offered uh, adver- advertising links with uh, various um, betting uh, <laughs> names over the time. I mean, you, you know, you might, be, you might struggle to believe that, but I have had contacts at times, and I always say no to them. I can't control what goes on the front end adverts of these shows because that's done through the the provider. But you know, I, I think you can choose what you. And I don't want to sound like I'm some kind of um, monk here, Neil. But I just do, I don't I don't believe the gambling industry is a terribly good influence. I mean, I'm thinking of the uh, cricket that we both like. I mean, there was a the famous the Pakistani boys that were the you know bowling no balls to order, weren't they? A few years ago now, but they. Uh, <laughs> They lost their livelihoods, but and I would have said there that probably guys from their background, I'm going to guess they were from you know village rural Pakistan, would have the money they were making, which was possibly 
moderate, um, but would have gone a long, long way in their in in the, for their their families in 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 their homeland. So, I I find it fascinating how people will fall for this, no matter how much or how little perhaps that they're they're making. Let's get on to the let's get on to the nineteen eighteen scandal. We, we've got a few. We've mentioned one player in the drama already. We've got Doug Douglas Thompson, um, a Canadian um, army military man playing for Millwall during his service in at the end of the First World War. He's located in London, wasn't he, Dougie Thompson? Yeah, I think he was a member of the Canadian Army uh, Pay Corps or something based in Millbank in central London. Yeah. Anybody knows Millbank yeah. is where the Labour Party used to be based. Uh, so I think he was working there. It wasn't a particularly good season for Millwall. That may, yeah, well, that makes a change, doesn't it? I think... <laughs> In a London combination, we'd lost seven of our first eight games. Which, God, you, you know, can you imagine if uh, if if we'd lost seven of our first eight games? Now, row it out, row it out. <laughs> very much. You so. can mention very quickly later, right at the end of the podcast. Yeah. This was actually his first season in charge. Took over from Bert Lipson at the start of this season. We should have, we should we would have axed one of our legends if we'd have got rid of him at that point. But you're right. I mean, also the crowds. I mean, this is first world war time, listeners. But not only are we playing consistently losing football here, but we're playing in front of four or five thousand people at Cold Blow Lane. Um, and there were good reasons for that. But it, you know, it was tough times. I think that's probably the best way to put it, Neil. This wasn't an easy start to or an easy season by any stretch of the imagination. But we were lined up against Brentford, who had made a very good start to their season, and I think were the hot favourites to beat us at Colblow Lane on December the fourteenth, nineteen eighteen. Yeah, Brentford were on the; they were actually top of the table. I, I was struggling to find a table. There wasn't one no, produced in Richard. So I think that Brentford were top of the table. They're on a long and beaten run. I think two or three months, which had ironically started with a win over Millwall. Right. <laughs> so, <laughs> There we are. So yeah, we're 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 lined up in this game to be the patsies of the of, of the day uh, at Colblow Lane. Played in front of ten thousand people. So this is a good crowd um, by comparison with some of the other low uh, half of the, uh, that figure for some of the previous uh, combination games. But we would run out quite decisive uh, result. Actually, we won it three one. Um, a goal from Stewart. Thompson, who is the uh, the protagonist in our little story here, and one Tomlinson scored in a three-one win over Brentford. Um, but there's more to this fixture than meets the eye, shall we say, Neil? Yeah. Now, funnily enough, yeah. Well, I was editing the Millwall Who's Who. That's how I came across this story. Yeah. And I was doing Thompson's uh, profile, just tidying it up and tidying up other stuff and. That, and I came across this story and I thought, what a wonderful story. I looked into it and uh, Millwall were actually approached, or yeah, but Thompson was approached to actually ensure that Millwall won the game. This yeah. wasn't the usual betting where you bet to lose. <laughs> <laughs> These Millwall players, I need to win. If Brentford had started well and were, were, were clearly favourites to, to win the match, the odds would have favoured, the money would have been fav- favouring a win for the Lions, because that's where the better odds could have been obtained, one would imagine. Um, so I'm just reading, this is from the uh, the Sheffield Daily Telegraph. I've got a fulsome account of the of the scandal. Uh, Millwall Sensation, they've got it here as nil, and they described Thompson. Uh, they took evidence from 
Douglas Thompson, a soldier engaged in the Canadian Pay Office at Millbank, and an agent, a player of the Mill Football and Athletic Company Limited. Um, he was offered an inducement, a one-pound inducement. Now, that's not an awful lot of money. <laughs> Um, which um, he was offered a pound. Um, I think that's like a, as a what do the lawyers call it? They call it a refresher, just to keep you interested. I think. Um, and then offered a gift. He was offered a gift of fifteen quid, which is about six hundred quidish in modern terms. Yeah, if the Lions beat Brentford, um, which they of course did. There's a wonderful account there. I don't know if you've seen the the trial. Um, Darling, it's like an episode of Arthur Daly's. Um, you know, kind of going into the Winchester Club. This, 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 this sequence. Uh, there's, there's um, Sir Archibald Bodkin prosecuting in, uh, in, in court. This, this is the Thompson's evidence. He recalls that uh, this, this chap Thatcher, who is the, the bookmaker, Henry Thatcher, also known as G. Wilson of Lordship Lane East Dulwich, um, he offered in a drink to start off with. Um, and then he, he uh, the bookmaker told him that he had 50 quid on Mill to beat Brentford. So he says, here's a quid now uh, to, to Thompson. I'll send you three more quid this this day week, this, this uh, next week. Um, the witness, Thompson, asked him, what's that for? What's the money for? Why are you giving me money to win? We're always setting out to win, he says. Um, and the bookmaker said, we, he was doing no wrong. Not much, he's not. He's trying to induce it, trying to corrupt <laughs> a football match um but he's, uh, anyway the, the the dialogue continues um so it, the, the the point being is, is why you're offering money from us to win so the defendant the bookmaker replies at some point um start worrying when i offer you 15 or 20 quid to lose then you'll we'll have time to talk but i've got to be off now don't be a fool get hold of this he says and with that i've got a mental image of him stuffing pound notes in his in his shirt pocket get hold of that yeah no we're to four against they were so there was some money to be made but this guy thatcher quite an interesting character yeah believe it or not he's actually from bermondsey well there we go um, (laughs) because as soon as because as soon as i read this I just went on to the 1921 census I had to. But I don't think he was actually the bookmaker. I think he was... The middle man. Yeah, I think he was acting on behalf of his son, William, who on the 1921 census is is down as his occupation is a backer of horses. That's his occupation. (laughs) Yeah. Seriously, on the 1921 census, his occupation was given as a. <laughs> that is fantastic. And, yeah, was actually a clerk to an estate agent. Some was actually on the 1911 census was actually living in Barford Road, Peckham, which is just over a mile away from the den. The now. ground, yeah. But no, on the 21 census, his occupation, William's occupation was given as a, as, yeah, as a backer of horses. So to that mind, uh, yeah, well, old Henry, <laughs> who was living with his son and his daughter-in-law in Lord Ship Lane, which made him so easy to find, yeah. <laughs> yeah, described 
as a retired carman, which I think was something to do with trams. Yeah, or I think that was it? it was like a car. Yeah, that's right. A driver of a tram, I think, some or conductor, maybe something like so that. My is, he was only the middleman, right, between his son, the white boy son, and these mill. Yeah, but well, that's only on my behalf. Thankfully, he's probably long dead and can't sue me, the son, so... Well, let's hope not. Let's hope not. Happy. If, if anyone's listening and they are members of the of, of the uh, of the Thatcher family, I'd love to hear from you. love to hear from you. This is wonderful stuff. Um, yeah, I mean, the other thing to say, listeners, I mean, what you've got to keep in mind is that we're so inured in this modern world, and as Neil and I just said, you know, you've got, you've got football teams with bookmakers splashed across their football shirts and TV adverts, and you can click with your phone and put a bet on in no time. Betting at this time, street corner betting particularly, was illegal, and was the province of well, villainy, and 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 you know it was it was it was it was the dark dark underbelly of London at this time, and those that placed bets were technically crossing a line. My own grandfather um, was loved the bet listeners, and but you had to use a pseudonym. You had to have like a betting name. You couldn't use your own name for fear of the police. <laughs> finding you so if you was to place a bet you would normally get your children as in my uncle was to run down to the local street corner with your bet and some money obviously um and your name on it which and you, you would use a, a pen name there like, and his name was gus he, his, his real name was john but he, he used the, the pen name gus that's all he was known as and you know gus gus would put um x on a dog a horse I don't know about football. I don't know if that was a betting, but clearly it was a market. But that was how it was done. It was illegal. Well, you know, there was no betting shops. It was not um, as easy by any stretch. And we've, we've become so, um, I don't know, embedded. It's become embedded in our society in a way that it was never, you know, never never used to be. Um, anyway, I've, I've digressed. I've digressed. Um, one question, Nick. What yeah. happens if you have more than one gas? <laughs> I think the thing was my my grandfather was a, it was it was a personality. You everyone knew who Gus was. There was the, if there was another Gus, you, like Gus changed his name. That's how it worked. <laughs> it's that kind of Gus. <laughs> you became I don't know what Tom Herbert. I don't know anything. But there was only one Gus. It, it was it was that very local. Um, built on uh, knowledge and connections, you know. The, it's, it's a very. Um, well, he was from Lambeth, but it's similar to Bermondsey in that way. Yeah, but the more you look into this story, Nick, and it, the thought has just occurred to me actually mm. that this must be pretty organised because you didn't have the telephone back then. No. So this guy has gone to the effort, or these people have gone to the effort. To identify the players, mm. identify where they work, where they live, because there were four of them, weren't there? Yeah. And gone to the effort to actually visit the house. I think Dick Griffiths, who later became a union official in the docks yeah. in East London, the spiritual home of Millwall, yeah. uh, was actually employed by the Port of London Authority. And Thatcher called at his home before the Brentford game, so th- there wasn't this wasn't a this wasn't a slap dash. No, no, far from do it. Do it on the type of bet. They must have surveyed these players, probably followed them, 
or even paid somebody else off to find out where these people live. They must have had an idea they were bendable as well. They must have had an idea that they, they could make an approach. And it, it, it didn't work out as they may have expected because the approach was reported to um, our directors, Thomas Thorne. We'll come on to him in a moment, actually. I've got a little account of him here. Um, but no, they must they must have had some idea or some sense that they were going to meet a willing audience when they or willing, you know, confederates in this in this scheme. But you're right. I mean, it would have been organised. It was the bookmaking was the province and ve- veered between the world of um, well, it probably was more cri- <laughs> it veered, <laughs> veered into the villainy criminal. It was not um, it was not a straight kind of profession i mean the, the man who put job as backer of horses was clearly <laughs> a man of some influence i think <laughs> so, you were dick griffiths you didn't live near Millwall, lived in Barstow, i yeah, think you've got to make an effort to go find him, uh, you know? um, so you that just shows the scale and the effort that went into tracking these people and tracing them it wasn't like they all lived in hundred yard radius of Millwall's ground, no. this guy Thompson were, was a Canadian soldier. I think he was Scottish, but served yeah, in the yeah. Canadian, Canadian forces. Yeah. But well, he was in Millbank, so they've obviously there's more to this story than meets the eye. Unfortunately, it was hundred and five years ago. Yeah, we won't get we won't get to <laughs> so, the you know, of it. Um, but there's just some wonderful stuff here. I mean, this, I'm going back to Dougie Thompson talking to Thatcher. Uh, who goes goes under uh, again another pseudonym, a bit like my grandfather, of uh, G G Wilson. Um, so we've got uh, when I'm coming off you fifteen or twenty quid to lose, then we'll we'll, we'll talk. Um, so he gives him a pound um, as a as a kind of a drink, I think, just to establish a, a relationship. Um, he then um, oh no, so he, the pound came to him via a paper which he left in his in, in Dougie's jacket pocket. He put that into his pocket. Um, when when he opened it up, this there was a pound note in there, um, and he got he got a letter on the Monday morning after Millwood won. We got a, met, a letter signed H Wilson, which he destroyed. So Dougie destroyed that letter. Um, the letter said, "Many thanks for what you did last Saturday. I shall not be able to come and see you, but if you will meet me tonight, I will take you to the London National Sporting Club. You can easily get to there by the Temple uh, Station on the Underground." You ring up 2026 and let me know what time I can meet you. Um, <laughs> so it all sounds a bit bent. And his wife, his wife corroborated that uh, he must have gone to this meet and he's has been given a further three quid um, by the aforesaid Henry Thatcher. Um, Mr. Thorne, our chairman, is, was also putting the dock in. Now, I don't know if you've seen this, this, this evidence, but um, Tom Thorne, was um, asked to give evidence. Um, he said that the club paid one pound a week to the, their players, which was for expenses, and this was to prevent the players from becoming professionals. Because we've got to keep in mind that um, during wartime, the club was not strictly speaking professional; it had gone amateur. So I think the you know the, the likes of Dougie taking money, they would be playing football for fun in a sense, apart from their one pound expenses, as, as uh, Tom Thorne here says that they get. But I suppose anything they can make on top of that would have been fairly, um, you know, fairly welcome. But I, I think that the, I, I, I think that the, you know, the, the corruption part comes in in actually uh, the, the the betting um, 
pyramid that's been built on top of it almost, you know. So Tom Thorne is asked, um, do you always try and win matches? He says, yes, we do. Sir Edward uh, replies, I see you lost 32 matches last year to laughter in courts. <laughs> the name of Millwall <laughs> caused, caused some, um, some hilarity in court. Sir Edward says, do you know what one, two, three on a horse race means? Yes, says Tom Thorne. So Sir Edward says, so you know all about that, but you do not know that the public are betting on Millwall more laughter in court. So I think he was made to look a bit of a, a bit of a prize pudding in, in court there, Tom Thorne. Um, but yeah, the end result was that um, Mr. Thatcher was convicted. I don't know that the player was, um, I think the player reported the approach, so therefore he wouldn't have done anything wrong. I don't know about the taking of money. I don't know where, where they would have gone with that. But Yeah, well, I think he gave the money to Tom Thorne, didn't he? Oh, well, that would have made him very popular with Thorne, wouldn't it? Yeah. Um, yeah, because uh, Thatcher was found guilty um, and he received a £50 fine and £100 towards costs as a substitute for imprisonment. So he, he, he was fined in total, 150 quid, um, including costs, uh, three months suspended. It would have been considerable money. Yeah, well, if, yeah, well, if £60 was the equivalent of... Of uh, what did you say? Sixty pound was the fifteen yeah. pound was the equivalent of well one hundred and fifty pound. If you take that fifty pound fine plus hundred quid towards costs to avoid going in the nick, listeners, then one hundred and fifty quid in nineteen nineteen is the equivalent of six thousand one hundred and twenty nine pounds. That would have hurt um, Mr. Thatcher and his son because that's a lot of horses he would have had to back to make that six thousand pound back. Wouldn't it? That would have that would, that would have hurt his. <laughs> Hurt his pride. Um, fascinating story. Let's have a quick look at um, Dougie's Millwall career. We don't really have numbers on this because he, he was only a passing through player. But he played for, um, in Canada, he played for a, a team called Minnedosa FC, Winnipeg Scottish. Uh, played for the Canadian play, Paycor, Dundee Violet, Millwall Athletic in 1919. Then he went to Aberdeen, Grimsby, and finished up at Dartford. Um, and he seems to have finished his days living in Crayford, um, in Crayford, and became a builder's costing clerk in Crayford. Fantastic! That's a, that's a great story, Neil. He passed away in nineteen forty-three, in the midst of the Second World War, aged fifty, yeah, fifty-one, when he died in the Second World War. That's the great Millwall. Quite an amazing. It's a fantastic story. The great Millwall betting. I, I, th- I think you're right. I mean, it's. It's naive to think that um, sport generally, but certainly a club like Millwall would have been unaffected by um, gambling and its and its influence on the game. Um, but it's, it's great to have it laid out in chapter and verse there um, in those dark, difficult times just after the First World War. So it just makes you wonder what would have happened if he hadn't have reported the approach and. Um... And um, well, if he'd actually kept the money, I, would it have laid them open to even more? Yeah, well, maybe that was the forerunner because they actually won three games. I think they beat Tottenham the week after. So, so was this part of a better thing that you yeah. that you increased the odds on possible on some kind of run? We've gone from losing losing to winning and drawing. I mean, you know, the, the, the form changes quite dramatically. Shows you what the power of money can do, listeners, doesn't it? Given that we have to lose again. There we are. That's the great betting scandal for a great, great find, Neil. I've, I've, I've enjoyed looking at that one. That was a fantastic story. 
I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements. Featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. Achtung, Mailball. I've got another war, well, post-war thing here for us to, to mull over briefly. Um, this is, as we're going into an international break weekend, listeners, so I thought I'd have a look and see what I could find that was had an international flavour at least. And this is um interesting little tournament in a way. It's played at the end of the season. It was a friendly tournament, uh, part of the Festival of Britain. Now, anyone um, who lives in London will know uh, the, the South Bank, which is the Festival Hall, Royal Festival Hall. You've got the National Theatre there. You've got uh, galleries, Haywood Gallery. There's, there's uh, all sorts of stuff over there. And that was all constructed in in the post-war period um, as a means of trying to enliven the country after well, the, you know, the Second World War and, and the, the destruction that had taken place. And as part of the Festival of Britain, which was in 1951, there was a, a, a post-season football exhibition tournament, um, which Mill took part in, um, amongst the other clubs around the country. There's a spread of names here. Um, some international games, but there was basically an invite tournament featuring British, Scottish, uh, there's got a Dutch club here, and Belgian. So there's a range of clubs from various European countries. I imagine it was kind of a, you know, bring celebrate the peace idea. I think there was one or two German sides in there to, you know, show them the way back and all that kind of thing. Um, but I found, found three results um, from the Festival of Britain played strangely after the at the end of the 1950-51 season. So you played a solid football season. You've got a, a tournament to play straight afterwards. Um, first game up, Neil, we've got Millwall 3, FC Harlem of, of Holland. Uh, three, so a three-all draw played out on the 9th of May 1951 in front of 9,060. Um, that's the other thing that struck me, you know, for a friendly, a friendly tournament, um, I don't think it was organised with a, with, with, with a, it's almost like a non-competitive tournament, if you can, if that makes any sense, because I don't think there was a winner. It was more the, the joy of playing in, in the Festival of Britain, but 9,000 people turned out to watch this free all draw 
and I found that there wasn't many weren't many press reports of the games, but I found one here. This is this I think is from the Daily Herald. Um, Millwall draw with speedy Dutch visitors. Millwall could not have got their Festival of Britain ball rolling with a better team than Holland's HFC Harlem, double A Harlem, who visited the Den on Wednesday evening. There was never a dull moment. In a game of constantly changing fortunes and fast end-to-end football, the result was worthy of the occasion. It must be admitted, however, that the visitors scored the more orthodox goals. Um, so we've got goal scorers from uh, Jacobs from Harlem uh, going one up. Then two minutes later, a centre forward Frank Neary rushed in, drawing goalkeeper uh, Jay Schneiders out of goal and passed passed him into the net. Uh, Neary, oh, Neary hesitated before goal and then walked in the ball when he heard no whistle. Um, we've then got goals from Mertens, another goal from Neary. Um, we'll take the lead with Jimmy Constantine. Um, and then find a late, late equaliser for one Jacobs to make it three or so an entertaining game. I think probably in spirit of the, the friendly essence of the tournament, um, it would get a bit less friendly because it's Millwall nil as it goes along. Um, a game against Dundee. A 2-1 win in midweek on the 12th of May. In fact, a 16,000 midweek game against Dundee United. Um, no press report for that, other than a short paragraph in the Dundee Courier that I've got here saying that Mill's goals were scored by short, a right half. Um, but the, the game that caught my eye, and I don't have a, a press report, other than a paragraph in Dave Sullivan's Millwall Miscellany book, which is an invaluable little book to get hold of if you can get a copy of it, listeners. We've got a 2-1 win over Anderlecht. RSC Anderlecht played on the 16th of May. Um, goals by Constantine and Leary, a penalty. And Dave describes this game as contentious and a tad nasty. So it sounds like there was a few late biting tackles going in there, Neil, against the Belgians for, to celebrate peace. Yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, but I think Harlem would have been... Actually, there is a Millwall connection with Harlan that I've just found out. It was actually Romeo Sion's first ever club. Oh, he played one game for I remember that. against yeah. 1992. It was in the Anglo-Italian Cup. Coincidentally, it was one of those. I think there would have been a. I think there would have been an awful lot of curiosity. Around these games, eleven thousand. Uh, probably... I've just found the the classified in the Yorkshire Post. No press report, but it's uh, it mentions a crowd of eleven thousand. So eleven thousand for Anderlecht, sixteen thousand for Dundee, and nine thousand for Harlem. So that's those are pretty good crowds for end of season friendlies now, aren't they? Yeah, you wouldn't have seen too many foreign teams, of course, back no. then, because there were no fights, were there? No. Uh, and you played every Saturday. Yeah. So, and it wasn't like in the old day, well, we were talking about, you used to have these games in olden times, but they were played in an afternoon. Yeah, absolutely. And on the free, you didn't have many of these. And this would have been a curiosity, I think, to to have watched a Dutch team that <laughs> that you hadn't heard of. And, uh, Different style of play. It, it was, yeah. Uh, there would have been there would have been a certain curiosity about it. And uh, Anderlecht were, yeah, well, I guess they were a big name back then. They're quite a big name now, aren't they? They are. Um, Qualified mode. I think you're right about, for Europe. about the novelty of it. I mean, this is an unrelated column. It was it was in the Yorkshire Post. They're talking about the, 
this chap Eric Stain just talking about the the tournament itself, but it makes that point, and I think that's why um, the crowds were large. I mean, it was an era where crowds were there was a hunger, I think, for entertainment at the end of the conflict, and post war years were quite drab. So I think people wanted to go see excitement. But he makes the point here that um, the festival uh, soccer, the festival of Britain soccer, um, has brought in some uh, delightful. Uh, examples of football played by Rapid of Vienna, Rapid Vienna, Stade Rene of France, um, a Yugoslav partisan side. Um, he describes their football as brilliantly conceived, but their shooting shocking or non-existent. He, he speculates that if we could combine the traditional virtues of British English football with the cleverness of the foreigners, then you'd have a fantastic style of play. I think we're still trying to trying to pull that combination off. Um, was it 60, 70 years on from the Festival of Britain? But um, yeah, I think it was that sense of excitement and there's something different, something to see that uh, you wouldn't otherwise have known about. Um, yeah, it might be some friendly, but you would have had the crowd. You were the crowd at Millwall. Yeah, well, I can remember. There's always something when these foreign and Scottish teams come down for friendlies. I used to love them. I can remember. I can remember, give us it Stour Bucharest pitched up. Yeah, we have a couple of players. That might be that might I be a might be a podcast idea because I can remember. I mean, didn't we have Hibernians come down one time and call some some uh, a yeah, frisson of excitement around Newcross? Um, yeah, we had a few over the, over the time. So there has always been these games and. And yeah, no, but I think it would make a fantastic podcast. We'll save that up. Yeah, well, not that we're going to give up ideas. <laughs> save, save that up for another day. So there we are. That's the Festival of Britain. That was played in May 1951. Um, it was celebratory. There was no winner. There was no um, table produced. It was just a series of exhibition games, hopefully to promote the, the virtues of, of what this chap Stanger saying, of clever play and entertaining football. Um and that was at the end of the 1950-51 season. Now, Neil, it is the, it is the international break weekend. That's why we're trying to put this little show together. And I mentioned some internationals the other day. Uh, the, the the most capped, when I did my live um, show the other day, listeners, I don't know if you would have heard it, but I thought I might just give it a quick run out again. Uh, these are our most capped internationals wearing a middle shirt, number of caps obtained for their country. Um, number five, the legendary John Daddy Bedvarsson, Neil. We've got 17 caps for Iceland whilst with Millwall, scoring one goal. Um, the, the, the man's legend lives on, doesn't it? Yeah, but he probably played more for Iceland than he did for us. It wouldn't surprise me. Um, so, yeah, he was number five in, in my list of um, all-time internationals. Um <laughs> You're, you're probably right about that, actually. Wouldn't, it wouldn't be... Let's have a look at his... Uh, let's have a quick look at John Daddy Bedvarsson. Let's have a quick look to see how many times he started for Millwall versus how many times he started for Iceland. And here it is. So... Um, it's got that detail on here. Uh, yeah, well, there goes the BAFTA or any other award. Nick, for the do. I don't know, <laughs> but you, you can't be far off with 17 caps. He didn't start that many times, I, I seem to recall. I'll, have to, I'll look at it up separately, listeners. Um, number four, Mick McCarthy got 19 caps whilst a Millwall player, playing for the Republic of Ireland, of course, one goal, including, 
I believe he was at the um, the uh, Italia 90 World Cup. So that's um, that's quite something. Um, famously, Eamon Dunphy, who was for many, many years our most capped international nil, wasn't he? He's always named in the record books as our most capped. Um, played 22 times for the Republic of Ireland during the 60s and 70s, I think. Um, number two, David Ford, um, who achieved you know his uh, international caps whilst a Millwall player 24 times. Um, no goals, obviously, as a, as a goalkeeper. But a most caps international, Neil, most caps in a, in a Millwall shirt is Shane Ferguson, 29 caps for Northern Ireland. And a player I always like. A player quite I quite like Shane Ferguson. I thought he was nice. You know, not not the most skillful player in the world, but he was he was all right, wasn't he? He was he was um very Millwall player in many ways. Made himself very busy. And that took me by surprise learning he was Millwall's most cat player. I probably knew it in the back of my mind. In a Millwall show. Or even I've got all that from the Millwall History website and I make no claims to accuracy, but that's that was just a quick back of an envelope. Um, tot up. I've got one or two noteworthy ones here, um, which I did mention on, in the previous show. No apologies going to be made. Um, we, we're going to mention J.R. Smith, uh, who's our most capped England player, Neil. Uh, two caps for England in the 1930s in home, home, home international. Two goals for the, for the, for the three Lions, uh, J.R. Smith. And I've got his biography here from the, a fascinating book called Mill Who's Who. Uh, I don't know who wrote it. James Christopher Reginald Smith played 138 games for the Lions between 1935 1946, so late 30s, and then wartime football. He scored 26 goals for us. He was born in Battersea in 1912 and passed away as recently as 2004. Um, he was an electrical engineer, Reg Smith, played for Hertfordshire, won the Spartan League before joining the Lions. Um, he was part of the team that reached the FA Cup semi-final in 1937 and went on to win the third division South title a year later. Um, then was obviously, as with so many players, Neil, the war intervened really, didn't it? I mean, it took away probably his, the, you know, the, the, the prime years of maybe his career after, after that success. But he was capped a member of the RAF and capped during the Second World War as, as, as an international. He retired to work for Singer Business Machines after the end of his career, which J.R. Smith. And he's our most capped England player. Uh, just to actually correct you, he's actually our joint most capped joint. England Apologies. player. Yeah, well, we've had eight players who have won 10 England caps. Uh, Harry Roberts, not the one that the fans <laughs> sing about these. <laughs> Dick Hill. <laughs> <laughs> Freddie Fox, yep. Lane Graham, who's Lane Graham. actually we also played too. Yeah, we mentioned him. Yeah, yeah. So he, so along with Reggie Smith, he he played two games. Jack Fort, uh, Willie Sutcliffe, John William Sutcliffe, uh, England Rugby Union International. Yeah, as well. I think is the last man to have played football and rugby for England. And Burt Banks. So it. it People forget that we've actually had England internationals. I know we're talking pre-war. pre-war. Yeah. And uh, I think that Brian King was on the bench for England in the early 70s for a game, I Is think, it it against Portugal. Yeah, I think, he's, I think he's mentioned that. It was a fringe. We were At that time, we were blessed with some fantastic goalkeepers in the national side. So, and King, he was a... A brilliant, brilliant goalkeeper. And I think in a different time he would have been a pick for the national side, but just there just wasn't. The and it's absolutely 
according to Kingy, it's an absolute travesty that Barry Kitch was never capped. Yeah. Especially in his early days, that when we were doing well and he was playing well, there was a school of thought that Kitch should have been capped. So we have actually had England internationals. But uh, but not since no, <laughs> but not since the war. Terry Herdock and, and uh, Alan McCleary for the B internationals, of course, in in, in nineteen eighty eight, and now we've got Ramon Sa in the under eighteen. So you know, it's we we are we are a club that produces good players, um, and yeah, I think you're right about it's easy to forget the you know the history of, of, of the club. I've got some other noteworthy ones here. We've got Jimmy Abdu who was capped 16 times in a mill shirt for the Comoros Islands. Um, Tony Cascarino, 15 caps and five goals for the Republic of Ireland, whilst in a mill shirt. And uh, Tim Cope... <laughs> not qualifying for them, was it? <laughs> you didn't he qualify? I think he, quite, he, he qualified in reality, but well, who knows? Who knows? It's probably a story best left to Tony to tell. Um, and then finally, Tim Cahill for Australia, um, five caps for the Aussies. Six goals in in their um, in their time. So those are the noteworthy ones that I picked out on my little list. I did read that out the other day, but it's good to have Neil to correct me where I'm. Fe- I thought fell short. No one to correct me when I'm in the den waffling into my my voice recorder. I think that Brian Horn was in England under twenty one international. I think Horny might listen if he does. He can correct me. I think but you're I think right. I think, yeah, I think he was named in the in, in the eighties again, wasn't it? Um, oh yeah, there we are. Well, it's international. That's it's international break weekend. Um, finally, then, uh, just to to finish us, we've we've mentioned already in the show now Bob Hunter, haven't we? One of our legendary names. Um, I suppose in different times with that difficult start to the nineteen eighteen betting season, he mightn't have made it much further, but he did. Thankfully, um, a legendary figure, and we've we've um, organised a memorial stone to be fitted via the the flakiest company in the world, as it's turned out, who disappeared on us. But now, thankfully, email uh, received today from the club saying that the club are doing the right thing. And well done to Mill FC for doing this, because it's costing the club some money. But they're going to pick up the unfulfilled orders from this Your Tribute Limited, who took the orders originally uh, from ourselves. And, and over 90-odd people, I think, have placed orders with them, which just haven't been fulfilled. They've you know, done a disappearing act. But thankfully now we're in. It's in sight for us to get our memorial plaque to Bob Hunter to be fitted on the side of the den, and we're going to do a little show about that. We're going to do something to commemorate that because it's going to be really nice to have his name marked at the den, um, and we'll just do a little bit of a memorial thing for him at that time, just to bring his name to everyone's attention to say who he was. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, yeah we'll go into a little bit more depth on who Bob Hunter was. Because uh, he's somebody that we mention mm. quite a lot, don't we? We do quite a lot of mentions of Bob Hunter. We do. Um... Uh, it, it would be good to would be good to spend an hour uh, just to actually tell people who he actually was and why he's important. Give a little bit of insight, yeah, into this yeah, into this figure. But but fantastic news that Millwall have stepped up to the plate and morally done the right thing. I know that we look to knock the club whenever we can. It's just what the fan, our fan base is at times. But they've done the right thing here. It probably took some cajoling, some 
some arms up behind the back and one or two other things, but they've actually done the right thing. But what amazes me, Nick, is that I'm, that there are still 40-odd people to come forward. Yeah. So I urge anybody that if they know somebody who's ordered a plaque, just check with them and make sure that they have contacted the club. Yeah. You've got to contact Oh, haven't you? Uh, well, we were saying just off air before we started recording, listeners, it's amazing still how many people aren't on the internet. People don't follow the club online. You know, they there is no match day programme there, Neil, is there? You know, there's, the paper newspaper industry is fading fast. Um, so, yeah, there were 90 odd orders placed with these charlatans. Um, your tribute limited have disappeared without trace. Um, the club have emailed me today so they've got 58 of 95 orders um records of them we won't go into the complexities of the the deal which i think everyone has agreed could have been a lot better arranged but anyway this is how it works the club have details of 58 people out of the 95 with placed orders um and so we're still looking really what's that about 30 37 people um we want to get hold of because you've placed orders for something for a plaque at the den and the club are now looking to get it done through one of their own contractors. So <clears throat> please do get in touch. With, uh, you're looking to get in touch with Shona, Shona Groves. Uh, her email is slo at millwallfc.co.uk. That's uh, slo at millwallfc.co.uk. Shona Groves. She's lovely. Um, she'll take your details. She'll help you. And well done to the club for, for doing this. It's, it's taken a long while to get there, but we got there. That's all that matters. And, um, yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing our Bob Hunter plaque up now because I think it's appropriate that we mark his name and, and others, actually. That, you know, um, there's, there's, there's lots and lots of names, as we do on these shows, lots of names from the past that deserve remembering and marking, and that's what we're trying to do on this, this show, at least, a little bit. So, anyway, well done, Millwall. Thanks for that. I think we've reached the end of our... Agenda, Neil. I think we're done. We have. Unfortunately, it's always great to talk about history for an hour Absolutely. on a on a, yeah, well, on a cold, damp uh, international <laughs> No Millwall. You're even more depressed. You're probably even more depressed than that. Uh, yeah, yeah, than that was on Saturday. Uh, we have got another couple of shows planned. Uh, we would, funnily enough, we were just discussing how best to go about doing it. We might give Twitter Spaces a go, doing one of these shows on Twitter Spaces. Yeah, I think we would. Well, we're, we're, what we're thinking of doing, listeners, is we'll select a, a historic theme, but we, we can invite people to come on, ask questions. You can even tweet your, your questions, and we can see them. Um, and we'll, between Neil and I, and any other callers that want to come in on the on, on the thing on the day, um, we'll do our best to give some semblance of an answer for you. So um, they're normally quite enjoyable, the, the live shows. <laughs> a bit nerve-wracking, but they can be, they're very enjoyable afterwards. And um, we were just weighing up whether to do one soon. So, um, you know, as they say, watch this space. We'll, we'll be coming back on that one. I, I, I always enjoy doing them, so we'll certainly give it a go on Twitter spaces, live live listen. So more news on that in due course. Neil? Big thank you for all the work you put into this betting scale. It's a wonderful find, mate. Well done, mate, on that. Yeah, no problem at all, mate. It's great to share this kind of story that would have been lost. And, uh, Absolutely. And, and we're giving it some life just so people can have a listen and uh, waste uh, 
yeah, waste an hour of their lives on listening to me and you whitter on. There we are, dear listeners. Enjoy the international weekend. Um, we'll be back after the West Brom away fixture. Uh, until then, it's from Neil and myself. It's Arriva Dirty Millwall. Bye for now. Achtung, Millwall. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.